This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com. Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. We are holding the middle of chapter 14, on the bottom of page 209. So having answered the question that he asked in chapter 1, how can Job say that Hashem has created the souls of the righteous and the souls of the wicked when we have freedom of choice? And he explained that he means that Hashem created the souls that have the potential to be righteous versus the souls that will have to struggle. Of course, we have freedom of choice how we're going to behave, but we don't have freedom of choice whether we will be righteous or not, whether we have the capacity, the ability to totally eradicate our evil inclination, to totally rise above our egos. We should transcend our egos and we should no longer have egos and become egoless. That's simply not within our power. That's touching our subconscious. That's transforming itself at the very core and essence. It's simply impossible. So you can have a person who's studying Torah and does mitzvot and is acting perfectly and his behavior is perfect and is kind, but nevertheless we still have an ego and we have to struggle with our egos and it's simply not within our power to totally erase, eradicate our egos on the, a level of the incomplete tzaddik, on the level of complete tzaddik to totally sublimate our egos, transform our egos. And that's some, not something within our, our ability and our capacity. So that's what he means. Hashem has created souls that were born with the capacity to become a tzaddik if they will they choose to be, become one and we, even if we want to and will and choose and we're just destined never to be a tzaddik, we're destined to struggle life will forever be a conflict for us life is a struggle, for the tzaddik as well, life is a struggle, but he struggles from good to even better, we have to struggle with ego, with negativity, that's why life is full of drama, life is always dramatic, life is full of surprises, life is always unpredictable um, but that's, that's our capacity of our soul. So he says, with, with this we can understand, going back to the opening of the Tanya. You open up the Tanya, it says, Tanya we learned in Abraisa, quotes the Talmud, that when the soul descends into this world, the soul is administered an oath. You should be a tzaddik and don't be a rasha. And then it says, even if the whole world tells you you're a tzaddik, you should always view yourself as a rasha. They asked the question, how can you view yourself as a Russia? Well, it's very depressing. Firstly, it contradicts the mission and ethics of our fathers. A person should not consider himself a Russia. But that question he already answered. He answered that it doesn't mean, even if the whole world tells you you're a tzaddik, you should view yourself as a Russia. It means even if the whole world views you as a tzaddik, as a genuine tzaddik, as a tzaddik of Tanya, you should not rest on your laurels. Don't, don't think to yourself for one moment that you're a tzaddik. Think to yourself that essentially you're a rasha, but you, you have overcome, and you have to constantly struggle. Don't rest on your laurels. Don't think that you have transformed yourself, that you're in the level of the tzaddik. That's what he means. Not, God forbid, that you're a rasha, you're actively doing something negative and prohibited. That would be a very depressing thought. 
That's not what the, that's not what the that's not what we're telling the soul. We're telling the soul that never don't rest on your laurels. Don't don't uh, lower your guard. Don't think that you've transformed just because you're behaving in a godly way. Don't for one moment think that your ego is gone and therefore you have nothing to worry about. Always be on, on guard. And that's why it's not depressing because I'm not behaving like a Russia. Behaviorally, I'm acting like a tzaddik, but essentially at the core, I'm like the Russia. I'm closer to the Russia than I am to the tzaddik. Because I have, I have my ego. I have a healthy ego and a vibrant ego. And every passing day, the ego gets more and more <laughs> vibrant and healthier and healthier, as he described earlier. But now he's explaining why the double oath. Be a tzaddik and don't be a rasha. If, if they administer an oath, I should be a tzaddik, automatically I'm not going to be a rasha. Why does it have to be a double oath? So with the previous explanation, now we'll be able to understand that as well. Now we may understand the repetitious wording in the oath administered to every Jew before birth. Be a tzaddik and be not a rasha, as quoted from the Talmud in the opening words of Tanya. At first glance, it seems puzzling. Once he is charged to be a tzaddik, implying clearly that he not be a rasha, why the need to adjure him again not to be a rasha? The answer is that inasmuch as not everyone is privileged to become a tzaddik, nor has a person the full advantage of choice in this matter of experiencing true delight in Hashem and of actually and truly abhorring evil, each person is consequently adjured a second time. You shall, at any rate, not be a rasha. Even if a person is not privileged to become a tzaddik, he should at the very least not be a rasha. Being instead of Benedict. Ideally, what we're telling every soul that comes into this world, ideally you should aspire to be a tzaddik. Try to be a tzaddik. That's the ideal. That's the ultimate goal. If you can be a tzaddik, if you can become egoless, that's the whole pur- purpose, the whole point of Torah mitzvah, that to go beyond the eye, beyond the ego, to recognize Hashem. There's no other reality but Hashem. So if that could permeate your being, and that could... That could become your reality, and you can have that clarity. That's the ideal, that's the ultimate, that's what a person should aspire towards. But since it's not a realistic goal for 99.9% of us, so at least if you're not going to reach the level of the tzaddik, at least don't be a rush, because that's within our capacity. With regard to this not being a rasha, the right of choice and freedom is extended to every man. To control the spirit of lust in his heart and to conquer his nature so that, he, so that he shall not be wicked for even one moment throughout his life. Hashem does not ask from us the impossible. Hashem asks from us only what is possible. Hashem doesn't load a camel with a load that we cannot handle. Everything He gives us, every challenge that He gives us is because He estimates, He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he knows that we have what it takes to be able to deal with this challenge. So if Hashem is demanding from each and every one of us to fulfill the code of Jewish law and to follow 613 mitzvot, obviously it's within our power to do so because we always have the freedom of choice. This is the foundation of Judaism. A person has freedom of choice to behave, to do the right thing at all times, at all places, under all circumstances without any excuses. We have that capacity. Hashem believes in us. He has faith in us. Some would call it blind faith. But he has faith in us. This applies both in the realm of turning away from evil, refraining from transgression, and in that of doing good, performing all the positive mitzvot 
in which he is obligated, and especially the Mitzvah of Torah study, which is specifically termed good, as our sages say, there is no good other than Torah, meaning the study of Torah which balances all of the other mitzvahs combined. And which is also the most difficult to fulfill, because every wasted moment, every moment, every opportunity you have to study Torah, if you're wasted, you don't study Torah, you have violated the, this essential mitzvah. So a person has the freedom of choice to do the right thing, to always use every waking moment to study Torah, engage your mind, engage your, your mind in studying of Torah. So obviously we have, we have that ability. The question remains, if for 99.9% .9 of us, being a tzaddik is simply not realistic, so why, why, why are we administered an oath? What's the meaning of this oath? We administered an oath, we're sworn. Be a tzaddik. You know, if a teacher asks a student a question and they don't know the answer, they don't know the answer. I mean, there's nothing they can do. They just simply don't have it inside of them. They don't know it. If Hashem is asking us to do something we cannot possibly achieve, what's the point? Why is Hashem administering an oath? Every single soul, that every Jew that before his neshama is born into this world, every one of us was administered an oath before we left heaven and descended into this world, this physical world, we were administered an oath. We should be a tzaddik. And this is an oath. We took an oath. You're going to be a tzaddik. Try to be a tzaddik. Why try for something that's impossible? It's like telling every human being on earth, six billion people, administering an oath, climb Mount Everest. <laughs> we only know that only a handful of people are going to climb Mount Everest. So what's the point of administering an oath when we know beforehand that we're going to fail? That's not possible. It's not within our capacity. So what's the point of this oath? You have to, when you're striving for something, you're avoiding the lower level beyond Ah, very, you. very good. So Kalman is answering, and now the Rebbe is going to say, that we are obligated to strive to be a tzaddik. And we are administered an oath. We administered an oath and we're, we're, um, we swore, each and every one of us, is sworn to aspire, to attempt to be a tzaddik. To the best of our ability. Even though we're going to fail. But nevertheless, we must attempt and aspire to be a tzaddik. Why? As Kalman says, because if you try to reach the stars, you're never going to reach the stars. They'll keep you out of the mud. Hmm. If you don't try to reach the stars, you're going to, be, you're going to end up in the mud. In order to fulfill the obligation not to be a rusher, it's not enough not to be a rusher. It's, 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 too, it's too difficult. The challenge of not being a rusher is a very difficult challenge. So therefore, we have to raise the threshold, we have to raise the bar a lot higher. Aspire your heart, your mind, your soul, your desire should be, you should dream of and you should aspire to be a tzad. And do whatever it takes, whatever you can, whatever is humanly possible to be the tzad. Of course, you'll never reach it, but at least that will keep you from falling from your true potential. So in order to realize your potential, you have to, you have to if a person is trying for a person, wants, a person is trying to make $100,000. He'll make 40, he'll make 50. Okay, listen, it's half of my goal, it's not bad. But if you raise the bar, <laughs> you want a half a million dollars, what's 50? 50 is a joke. I have to get something, 200,000. 
a million, you know, the higher the bar, even if you don't reach it, even if you don't reach half of it. But at least it has to be something presentable. It has to be something with something within the ballpark. This is why it's important for us when we're administered an oath. We must attempt to be a tzaddik. Now he's going to explain, how do we attempt to be a tzaddik if we don't have the capacity to be a tzaddik? What does that mean practically? What do you mean attempt to be a tzaddik? Attempt? What does that mean? Nevertheless, though it has been said that not every person can loathe evil and attain the love of delights, characteristic of a tzaddik, and we are dealing here with a benoni, yet one must also set aside specific periods to seek for himself means of abhorring evil, i.e. of loathing worldly pleasure. What's the definition of a tzaddik? A tzaddik is not only someone who's perfect in behavior, who always does the right thing, and never does anything that's wrong, but he actually hates doing the wrong. He despises evil. And someone who, who, whose delight and pleasure derives delight and pleasure from doing the right thing. Now the Bainani is not on this level. The Bainani has to force himself, discipline himself to do the right thing. He's tempted to do evil. He's tempted. The world is very tempting for the Bainani. But nevertheless, he has disciplines himself and overcomes his temptations. Um, he doesn't find it tremendously delightful to, to study Torah and do mitzvahs. It's very difficult to wake up early in the morning and come and learn Torah and do mitzvahs. But he pushes himself and he disciplines himself and he does the right thing. It's a difficulty. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a test. It's um, a struggle. So here we're telling the Benini, each and every Jew, to try to be like the tzaddik. Try to develop a, a distaste for materialism. Try to develop a distaste for materialism. To abhor materialism. To be disgusted by materialism, per se. Even though it's not going to be genuine. Because whom are we kidding? <laughs> we, we don't find materialism disgusting. <laughs> we find materialism very pleasurable. And we always will find materialism very pleasurable. Not like a tzaddik. A tzaddik genuinely finds materialism per se. It's disgusting. The whole idea of self-indulgence for the tzaddik, the whole idea of just skin-deep, superficial, materialistic indulgence, fame, money, power, is it's actually repulsive for the tzaddik. He finds it physically repulsive and disgusting. We can't even relate to it. To us, physicality, materialism is very attractive. And it always will be. But nevertheless, we should try to develop a taste, using our imagination, trying to develop a, we should find materialism repulsive. For example, For example, following the advice of our sages on overcoming the lust of women, let one reflect on their words, woman is a vessel full of filth and the like. One of the rabbis said, he says, if Hashem would not command us to get married, how could we get married? He says, a woman is full of filth, unquote. In other words, the whole idea of the whole idea of sexual attraction per se. We're not talking about soul connection, genuine love. We're talking about lust, um, skin skin deep attraction, childlike puppy love, and the material attraction that we all find so attractive, which is just human nature, 
most, one of the most powerful attractions to the tzaddik is, is actually repulsive. If it's just skin deep and just superficial, it has no attraction to the tzaddik. To the tzaddik, it's about two soulmates, two souls coming together. The, the, the material, the physical, is just an expression of the spiritual. And uh, ironically, the irony of irony is that, of course, when the most, uh, the greatest aphrodisiac and the most uh, er erotic thing is actually when there is genuine love and when there's actually two souls coming together, when the physical is just a reflection of the spiritual. But we live in a materialistic world, and the material is divorced and disconnected from the spiritual. It's an end in itself. When the material is an end in itself, and it's just lust. It's not about intimacy. It's not about love. It's not about two souls coming together. It's not about a relationship. It's not about give and take, where there's give and take, and take and give, and it's mutual, simultaneous. But when it's just, when the material is, is divorced from the spiritual, when it's only take, not receive. When there's give and take is you receive and you give. And she receives and she gives. And it's simultaneous because it's a relationship. It's a two-way street. You don't take, you don't grab. It's a you receive and you appreciate and there's a personal connection. There's a soul connection. And that's, that's, that's electric and that's exciting and that's, that's holy and it's precious and that's special and, and Hashem is in the bedroom and Hashem is a partner and Hashem is present and and that, that's why the miracle of creation results from that, the ultimate miracle, creating something that's infinite, because it's beautiful. There's nothing dirty or... or, or uh, the Jewish understanding of sexuality is something very holy. It's kiddushin. It's called holiness. Marriage is called kiddushin. It's not like the other religions look at it as something that's dirty, and, and that's why the ultimate is the nun or the monk or the Buddha, who, who's actually... Uh, Who's, uh, who's single. Um, that's not the ideal in Judaism. The ideal in Judaism, the high priest is not allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies in Yom Kippur unless he's a married man. Um, because it's something that's holy and very precious and very special. Adam Achava, when God created them, they were in the Garden of Eden, having relations, giving birth. So it's something beautiful and holy. But after the sin, the material became divorced and disconnected from the spiritual, from the emotional, from the soul, from the spiritual. And it just became an end in itself. As an end in itself, it just became lust, eroticism. And as an end in itself, the tzaddik finds it very repulsive. For us to find it repulsive, who are we kidding? We don't find it repulsive. It's the most powerful attraction. And if anyone tells you he doesn't find it, he doesn't find it attractive, he's just deluding himself. It's true, we have our capacity for self-delusion is quite infinite, but, but, <laughs> but it's a very powerful, 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 the most powerful attraction. And that's why we have the most safeguards, because it's so powerful that it can just you know, take over our lives and just destroy us. Um, that's why every society has, has safeguards, but it's a very powerful force. 
Nevertheless, even though we cannot genuinely be in the level of the tzaddik, that we should find the, the materialistic aspect of it without divorce from its inner, from its spiritual aspect, where there's a relationship, where there's a give and take, where there's a receiving and a giving back at the same time. But when, the, when it becomes divorced from its spiritual side and then it just becomes grabbing and taking and using the other person basically just using the other person the other person is just a prop the other person is really invisible i mean the the, the they're, they're close proximity to each other but they're just deepening their alienation there's no intimacy and there's no warmth and there's no they don't, they don't become one they just separates them and they chew each other and spit each other out you know and they don't have any use anymore or the other person doesn't do anything for them anymore there's no novelty the novelty is gone etc it's basically it's using, abusing, taking, grabbing. The other person is nothing. The other person is just a prop. Which is the reason why certain relationships in the Torah is prohibited. Because it's a one-way relationship. There's no relationship. It's just using the other person. The other person is just a prop. It's a one-way just grabbing and taking. For example, the homosexual relation, etc. It's totally abhorrent in the Torah. The whole relationship, the whole... Uh, there is no relationship. It's just basically grabbing and taking and just using the other person. There's no give and there's no take. It's just a one-way street. When sexuality becomes divorced of its spiritual anchor, and its spiritual source and root, root and source, it becomes some, something very repulsive. And the tzaddik feels it. The tzaddik is genuinely repulsed by it. How can something so noble, something so holy, something so precious, something so deep, something so special be reduced to, to chicken soup? Just a cup of Coca-Cola. <laughs> You're thirsty for Coca-Cola and you have an urge and it's basically the same thing and society equates it equally. Basically the same value. You know, just, just an urge, an instinct, meaningless, empty. And the tzaddik is just repulsed by that. To, to look at, at a woman sexually and just be around sexually without any without any intimacy, without any connection, not in the context of marriage, not in the context of really becoming one with the person and creating something eternal and infinite. To the tzaddik, this is, this is, he's actually repulsed by it. Just like we would be repulsed if you saw a container filled, filled with, uh, with uh, etc., you would be repulsed. He's repulsed by it. He doesn't find it attractive. There's nothing attractive. What's, what's, what's the attraction? The attraction is because it's deep, it's intimate, it's real, it's a soul connection. That's the attraction. It's a marriage. But just the, the sexual attraction per se, divorce from any inner content to the tzaddik, is actually repulsive. But where does that leave us? We cannot be on that level. We're not on that level. Because we have healthy egos and we're grounded in this materialistic world and we respond to materialism and we live. This is our language, this is our urge and nature and instinct. We have egos and we can't change it. All the Torah learning in the world and all the mitzvot in the world will not change that for us. We're not destined to become a tzaddik. We don't have the capacity to be a tzaddik. Materialism speaks to us and it speaks loud and clear to us and especially in the world we live in where it's all around us. But nevertheless, we could use our imagination. We can attempt, even though we know it's not genuine, because after all the imagination in the world, we'll still hold the attraction. It'll be like the story with the, uh, with the Rambam, Maimonides, had an argument with other philosophers whether you can change the nature of an animal. So the uh, other philosophers argue in front of the sultan, in front of the king, that we can prove to you that we can change the nature of an animal. 
Maimonides disagreed, and and they called for a banquet, and these professors, philosophers, trained these cats for years, trained them how to behave like humans. And the king is sitting there in the banquet with all the ministers and the cats all dressed up in their tuxedos, <laughs> and walking around with the sushi, going around. For <laughs> And everyone was clapping and applauding. This is, this is miraculous. Look what the philosophers of Akamas just proved the point. Anyway, the Rambam, the Maimonides, comes into the banquet with a little bag. He doesn't tell anyone what's in the bag. <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of the meal, he opens the bag and lets the mouse out. <laughs> and before you know it, they forgot their tuxedos, they forgot the sushi, they ran after the mouse. <laughs> they forgot where they were. They reverted back to their nature. So. We can, all the, with all the imagination in the world, we can imagine and try to be like a tzaddik, but let's not kid ourselves. <laughs> the moment we see that mouse, all the reasoning in the world goes away and all the imagination in the world fades away. In one moment, then we feel that powerful urge and instinct and attraction, because that's who we are. Let's not kid ourselves. But nevertheless, we should try at least, because we know the power of imagination. And we see it in today's world. What's Madison happening? It's all about, it's all, the use, it's all the use of imagination. You can take something that's really repulsive and disgusting, and you can make it beautiful, you can make it attractive with the right advertisement, the right packaging. It's all in the packaging. You can take something that's empty and meaningless and foolish, and you can make it glitzy and glamorous. I mean, there are causes that people flock to that are meaningless, empty, and yet, it, it becomes in, it becomes attractive. Bottled water, they put it in a nice container, and you, know, you buy this kind of water, so the other kind of water. Exactly, bottled water, and anything, it's all in the packaging. Everything is in the packaging. They package politicians, they package people, people you wouldn't even want to sit in the same table with, <laughs> in the same room with, but if it's the right packaging, and vice versa. You can take something as genuinely good, you can do such a story in it. By the time it's through, you'll be so disgusted and repulsive. You can take a beautiful person and by the time you do such a job in him and the image of this person will be so horrible and you can take something that really has value and you can point out every flaw and by the time you're done with it, you're disgusted by it. This is the power of, of media. This is the power of present, presentation. It's all imagination. It's how you look at something. It's how you look at it, how you package it, how you present it. So the Alter Rebbe is saying that Hashem administers each and every one of us, our soul is administered on oath, is use your imagination. It's all in the packaging. So if you, if you train your mind to see, point out, poke holes, poke holes and point out the emptiness and the superficiality and the absurdity and the ridiculousness of materialistic pursuits per se, the emptiness, we know it will never satisfy you. We all know that. The more you indulge, imagine if you had the ability to indulge in every urge and instinct <laughs> possible. Did that make you a happy person? Look at all the Hollywood stars. They have the looks. They have the means. They have the opportunities. The best looking, the best paid, stars, fame. Now look, miserable marriages. <laughs> mis- mis- misery, period. It doesn't... The physical attraction, per se, is not going to make you happy. All the materialistic indulgences in the world will not make you happy. It's a fantasy. That's all it is. It's one big fantasy. It's one big hype. It's one big lie. We're being sold a bill of goods. The Yetzirah is the ultimate Madison Avenue hype. What's the Yetzirah selling us? What's our ego selling us? It's selling us a bill of goods. It's selling us the Brooklyn Bridge. It's selling us nothing. 
It's nothing. At the end of the day, you indulge. Oh, I'll be happy. What happy? What happy? It makes you more miserable. It deepens your misery. The more you have, the less satisfied you are. The more you want, the more empty you feel. As the Talmud says regarding the sexual urge, the more you satisfy it, the hungrier you are. The hungrier you are, the more satisfied you are. The less you indulge, the more satisfied you are. The more restraint, the more satisfied you are. The more you indulge, the more dissatisfied, the hungrier you get. So materialism per se, it's really a bill of goods. The evil inclination, the Yetzirah, our egos, our natural instincts, urges, materialistic self, is really selling us a bill of goods. So use your imagination to focus on that. Realize the emptiness of it. And if the more you focus on the superficiality and the ridiculousness, and you see the examples, look at all these famous people and all their examples, they have everything going for them. And look how miserable they are. Look at it. Because it doesn't work, it's not real. It's a mirage, that's all it is, a mirage. It's a, we're being seduced, we're being sold a bill of goods. And the more you realize that, the more indignant you get, and the angrier you get. And in a certain sense, you could develop a certain repulsiveness. I'm repulsed by materialism, per se, because I know it's a, it's a dead end. It doesn't do anything for me. It's not my friend. This siren, I think, is my friend. Oh, come, let's have fun. What fun? When fun? You're not telling me about the misery at the end of the road. You're just telling me about the, the momentary fun. But how about all the misery that's going to come at the end because there's nothing here. It's empty, superficial. Nothing external could possibly satisfy me. Nothing external could possibly make me happy. So what are you selling me a bill of goods? Get indignant. Get angry. Use your imagination to poke holes. If with imagination you can package anything. And that's what the Yetzirah does with us. Our egos package everything. Everything becomes seductive. Junk food. Ah, look, look how packaged. Look how delicious it looks. Look how delicious it tastes. Of course, it's going to kill you. It's going to this. But that, that part, no one, no one tells you. No one advertises. But the more you probe deeper, and the more you use the imagination to see what's at the end of the road. Right? What, what was the movie that came out? Super Size Me? <coughs> Super Size Me? Mm-hmm. What, how many weeks did he live off uh, <coughs> junk food? A year. A year. Another guy's talking. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he got sick. Oh, he got terribly sick. He got terribly sick. He's lucky he lived. He's lucky he lived. So, here, so there you go. So here, the whole industry is selling us a bill of goods. Junk food. Eat, eat, enjoy. Beautiful advertisements. But, the, but the, if you use your imagination, use the intellect that Hashem gave us to realize what's at the end of this road. What are they selling? They're selling me junk. They're not my friends. They're not interested in my well-being. This is, this is going to kill me. So, so you get angry, you get indignant. And so you can develop even a certain repulsiveness by junk food. And just like you have junk food, you have junk lifestyle. So when you realize that this materialism divorced from any inner content, from the soul, from, from the personal, from the spiritual, from the intimate, it, it's actually it's, it's a dead end. It's self-destructive. It's empty. It deepens my isolation. It doesn't fulfill me. It doesn't satisfy me. It, there's nothing here. I'm being sold a bill of goods. These people that do not have my interests in mind and heart, they're not my friends. You get indignant and you even develop a certain repulsiveness to this, to materialism per se. But yes, of course it's not 100% genuine. Because we are like the, the, the cat. The moment the mouse is out, <laughs> we forget the tuxedo, we forget the training, and we just run. You can diet and suddenly you see that delicious, uh, delicious ice cream there and all the reasons in the world and all the arguments in the world just go by the wayside. And you just dive into that. Uh, but that's our nature, fine. So we know we can never be genuinely, we can never achieve that genuinely, but at least we can try. 
at least we can develop some taste. At least the, the sheen is off. You know, if you can do damage, it's easy to do damage. It's easy to, to harm a reputation or to, to speak negative. So use that ability to speak negative about, think negative about all these pleasurable things that you think is so pleasurable, you're so excited about. Wow, if only I can do this, if only I can indulge, if only I can live like a pig, if only I can, I can live without restraints, if only I can live as I please, I'll be the happiest person in the world. Come on. You're smarter than that. Who are you kidding? And the moment you, the more you, you puncture holes into that whole story, into that whole lie, into that whole mirage, then it's easier, it's easier to overcome. Because you do develop, after a while, you, you do it long enough, and the healthier the imagination you have, the better, you do it long enough, you develop a certain repulsiveness. It's not 100% genuine, but you do develop a certain taste that you're repulsed. At least you tell yourself, I hate materialism per se, just for this pursuit, just for this pursuit of self-indulgence. It does nothing for me. It's empty, it's superficial, it doesn't speak to me, I don't like it. And even though, yes, it's a little of an act, so act. <laughs> What's wrong? Also, it's a good act. And also Hashem will help. Oh, that, that, that will come to the little soon. Okay, so let's continue. So, for, for example, following the advice of our sages, overcoming a lustful woman, let, let one reflect in their words, woman is a vessel full of filth and the like. So too, one may learn to despise gluttony by reflecting that all dainty and delicacies similarly become vessels full of waste. What's the end? What's the end result of it all? What's the end result of all these indulgences? What does it do for you? Does it do anything for your health? Does it do anything for your well-being? Does it give you more energy? It just makes you sick. It, what does it do for you? It doesn't do anything for you. It's a dead end. It's a lie. It's a fantasy. It's a phantom. You're chasing a phantom. You're chasing something that never is and never was and never will be. It's just dazzling. It's, 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 the greater the lie, the more dazzling it is and seductive. The drunker it is, the tastier it is, the more seductive it is, the greater the pull. But, but open your mind and open use your imagination and realize the emptiness and it, should, and it gets you indignant. Makes you angry, makes you upset. Hashem created these things. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. But Hashem created these things, and the Jews' mission is to reconnect it to its soul. When you eat, it should be a godly content to the eating. Everything a Jew does is connected to a soul. There's a meaning behind it. There's a purpose behind it. There's a godly purpose behind it. You're connecting it to its root, to its source. Then it comes alive. Then you're connecting the fruit to the shell. The problem is when you divorce the shell, the fruit from the shell, and you're munching on the shell, and then you're wondering why you have a stomachache. It doesn't nourish you, doesn't nurture you, it just, it just, it just upsets your stomach because there's nothing there. You've discarded the fruit. Materialism per se, materialism is just a shell. It's a means to an end. If it's a means to an end, and you take that energy, and you study Torah, and do mitzvot, and you realize what's the means, and what's the end, and how, how do you define myself? I define myself as a Jew. I define myself by my, by, by my spiritual life. And the materialism is a means to an end. Then materialism is very healthy and wholesome. There's nothing wrong with materialism. Judaism doesn't preach asceticism. Judaism doesn't preach escapism. Judaism preaches engaging in the world. But engaging in the world and elevating the world, transforming the world, bringing Hashem into this world, Filling the world, filling your life with holiness, not escaping the world, dealing with it, but elevating it, reconnecting it to its source. Because when you reconnect it to its source, when the material and the spiritual are together, then you have a healthy, wholesome product. 
then the act of eating becomes healthy and wholesome and holy. Then the act of sexuality becomes something holy and intimate. Hashem is present. It's beautiful. It's holy. There's nothing holier than it. Not, not disgusting, not repulsive at all. Something beautiful. And the man and the woman, the woman is not, as he described here, a vessel full of filth. God forbid, the woman is, it's, it's the shechina, the feminine aspect of Hashem, the masculine aspect of Hashem. And when husband and wife come together, you're, you're uniting the shechina, you're uniting Hashem, you're making the universe whole once again. It's the most beautiful, sublime, uplifting, inspiring thing. imaginable. But that's when the physical is connected to the spiritual. When it's done in marriage and there's no extra marital, there's no premarital, and it's done in holiness with a mikvah, and it's done with love, and it's done in, in the right context, then there's nothing holier, and there's, and there's nothing more sublime or uplifting. Something, some, it's infinite. We become partners with Hashem in creation. It's the most the greatest miracle. But it's when materialism per se, materialism that's divorced from any inner content, from any higher, that becomes repulsive and disgusting. That's like a, a vessel full of filth. When it's all about skin deep, when you just look at the, at the woman, but you look at her and, and her skin, just skin deep, you're not looking at anything, the soul, there's no person, there's no soul, it's just skin deep. That the tzaddik finds repulsive. And that, to a certain extent, if we use our imaginations and we use our Madison Avenue abilities, we can, we can develop a certain, a certain taste, a certain sense, sensibility, a certain sense of repulsiveness toward the emptiness and the superficiality and the abuse and the using of the other person and exposing it for what it really is because it's really exposing for the truth. What people call love is not love. It's taking, it's grabbing, it's using the other person. The other person is invisible. The other person is a prop. It's all they are. And I use you, abuse you, and then I spit you out. And I have no need for you anymore. You don't do anything for me anymore. You're nothing. I trade you in like a new car. That's all. Like an old car. That's all it is. That, that's, not, that's not real. That's not love. That's not marriage. That's not intimacy. So this is, this, is, this is what repulses you. When you see through the superficiality and the emptiness and the lies and, and the whole... In other words, what he's trying to say also is that people... You know, sometimes we're overwhelmed, we're so taken in by society, and we're so overwhelmed by all the messages of society, and we have such an uh, undeserved, healthy respect for society, and for what people accept as normal, and for what, this is the way the world does it, and this is acceptable, and this is, this is normal. The tzad, we have to develop something of the tzaddik. The tzaddik has no respect for what people have respect for. The tzaddik sees through it. The tzaddik has a healthy disdain, a healthy disrespect for societal norms, for what everyone takes for granted, you know, that this is the normal way. The tzaddik has a healthy disdain, because the tzaddik realizes that this is, this is foolishness, this is ridiculous, this is absurd, this makes no sense, it's, 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 it's disgusting, it's repulsive, it's using people, it's abusive. It's, it's... And we can also develop that. Let's use our imagination to see through it. Instead of having this healthy awe and respect, well, if everyone does it, it must be. If society says so, it's, it's okay. Well, it's not okay. Maybe that's the biggest proof that it's not okay if everyone does it. That, that's not the, that's, we have to be able to have a certain perspective and be able to see things a little deeper and to realize the emptiness of it, the superficiality of it, the heartbreak, the dead end. Where does it all lead to? And it's empty. It won't satisfy. Indulgence won't satisfy. External, sat external indulgence won't satisfy. 
and it, it just leads to emptiness and heartache and and um, and you see some of the most successful people I mean the richest people were miserable Howard Hughes was the wealthiest human being on earth and he died a miserable human being you look at all these glamorous stars broken lives shattered lives miserable human beings miserable creatures it's a pity on them Rahmanas. so all the money power fame in the world didn't do them any good so you, you, can, you should puncture holes. Don't be in awe. Don't be in awe of the materialistic world. See it for what it is. It's a pack of lies. It's a house of cards. There's no substance to it. It's empty. It's vacuous. It's skin deep. There's nothing here. And it's not your friend. It presents itself as your friend. No, come. I'm your friend. Let's have fun. What fun? When fun? You're killing me. It's not fun. So the more you dwell in it and focus in it and develop a certain sensibility, you could, in your imagination, you could develop a certain, a certain repulsiveness. You should be repulsed, feel repulsed, feel angry, upset, indignant, and not be taken in by all these narishkai, by this foolishness. So even though it's not genuine, we must reiterate, it's not genuine, because we're not the tzaddik. And the moment the, the mouse is out of the bag, <laughs> We're back to our good old selves in a moment, in a blink of an eye, in a heartbeat. But nevertheless, it's helpful. It's helpful. It helps us. You develop, after a while, you develop a certain habit of looking at a certain way. It gives you a certain distaste. And, you know, maybe it'll help, it'll help you choose the right thing. It'll help you do the right thing and overcome, resist temptation. It's very helpful. Likewise. Likewise, with regard to all the pleasures of this world, the wise man foresees what becomes of them. They ultimately rot and become worms and refuse. In this way, one cultivates an abhorrence of worldly pleasures. So that's in the negative, how you develop uh, this pleasure, just like the tzaddik is repulsed by materialism per se, we can also develop a certain level, very superficial level, but a certain level we could develop, using our imagination, we could develop a certain abhorrence of worldly pleasures per se, indulgence per se. But conversely... Conversely, one should train himself to delight and rejoice in Hashem by reflecting to the best of his ability on the greatness of the blessed Ein Sof. You should try using your imagination and using your, your mind by meditating and studying and meditating and reflecting and focusing and concentrating on godliness and Hashem's infinite self and the fact that Hashem fills all the worlds and Hashem transcends all the worlds and Hashem's essence is beyond even transcending and and the more you realize and the more you think deeply about the greatness of Hashem and Hashem's infinity and Hashem's unity, um, you could develop a certain excitement, a pleasure. You derive pleasure from, from dwelling in Hashem, from, from focusing in Hashem, concentrating on Hashem, from realizing Hashem's, Hashem's greatness. And that, and that uh, rejoices your soul to a certain level, a certain sense. You feel a certain uh, pleasure in, in doing it. He may well know that he will not attain this degree of loathing evil and delighting in godliness with the fullest measure of truth, but will only imagine it. So the question is, what's the point? Since it's not genuine, what's the point? Is this, is this Torah telling us to do it? Is this an ex exercise of futility? Is the Torah encouraging us to just imagine things that are not real for us? To pretend to be something that we're not? To try to reach a level that we can never truly attain? To, tr to pretend that we abhor evil when we don't. 
to pretend that we genuinely delight in godliness when we don't. We delight in the good and the good, uh, <laughs> good steak sandwich a lot more than we delight in godliness. Are we just pretending? What's the point? Is the Torah encouraging us to be unreal, to be, to deceive ourselves, to delude ourselves? What's the point? Second paragraph in the book. Yeah. The Shadu's part to uphold the oath administered to him to, quote, be it tzaddik, end quote. And God will do as he sees fit. We have to do what we can. We have to try. We have to attempt. Now it's in Hashem's hands. I have done the best that I can. I can't do anything more. I'm doing the right thing. I'm using my imagination. I'm using my mind, my abilities that Hashem gave me to try to somewhat try to develop an abhorrence, a, a distaste for materialism per se, and to somewhat develop a pleasure in godliness. That's all I can do. That's all Hashem asks from us. Do the best that you can. The rest is up to Hashem. Now it's in Hashem's hands. Hashem wants me to reach the level of a tzaddik. It's a gift. Like we learned earlier, it's a gift from Hashem. Hashem, it's in Hashem's hands. It's not humanly possible. It's not, it's not through human effort. Or through human, it's not a human accomplishment or human achievement. It's a direct gift from Hashem. Furthermore, furthermore, emulating the tzaddik in loathing evil and delighting in God produces another benefit for the Benoni. Habit reigns supreme in all matters. It becomes second nature. Therefore, when one accustoms himself to loathe evil, he will begin to find it truly loathsome to some extent. We know the power of nature. There's our inborn natures, our inherent natures, <laughs> but we also have the power to change nature until it becomes second nature. You can overcome your nature and develop, create a new habit, a new nature, until it becomes second nature. Sometimes you go to the other extreme. A person who's born very mean and very, just a horrible character, could, through his effort, go take the other extreme and become an extremely kind and decent and caring person. It, it's with tremendous effort and tremendous difficulty. But after a while, it becomes a second nature. It becomes like a second habit. And it becomes very deeply rooted, as powerful as his original habit. And it can even override his original habit. So you see, when you do something long enough, every time you do it, it's like the story of Rabbi Akiva. What inspired Rabbi Akiva to study Torah, to start studying Torah at the age of 40? He saw the water drip on the rock, drop after drop, day in, day out, with no dent. But after a while, after days, weeks, months, years, it finally made a dent. All those drops added up, and finally, even the rock, the unbudgerable rock, it moved the rock and penetrated the rock. So he took it to heart. If a rock can change by constant dripping and dripping, relentless dripping, drop after drop after drop, how much more so that a human being and a Jew and a Shama could change, could change his personality and character and habit by, by relentlessly changing drop after drop. So, so too, habit, if you, can, if you repetition, and constantly you can create a new habit. And it could change your personality. It could change a certain effect. It could become a very powerful. If you get used to looking at materialism, every time you look at materialism per se, and you look at it as, um, as something disgusting, and you train your mind to think that way, and to poke the hole, and to see the emptiness, and to point out the superficiality, and to point out the ridiculousness, and the absurdity, and the... And to tell yourself, I hate it, I'm repulsed by it, it's sickening, it's disgusting, it's, and it's a dead end, and it's a lie, and it's, it's just a pack of lies. And, and you, work, you work up, you work yourself up about it, after a while it becomes a habit, and a habit is very powerful. 
And you'll start looking at the world that way. And you start looking at materialism that way. And that will help you to be able to overcome, resist temptation. I don't want to go there. I know how disgusting it is and how repulsive and how empty it is. I don't want to go there. I know, I know it's going to lead to heartache. I don't want to go there. So it's helpful. It's beneficial. It's not just we're imagining things. It actually has a practical benefit. Continue. And, and when he accustoms himself to rejoice in God through reflecting on his greatness, then on the principle that an arousal of man below brings a corresponding arousal above, perhaps after all this effort of his, a spirit or ruach from above will descend upon him. And it will be granted him that the soul level of ruach, originating in the soul of some tzaddik, will be, quote, impregnated, end quote, in him, so that he may serve God with true joy. Kabbalah speaks of the soul of a tzaddik, quote, impregnating, end quote, another soul with its faculties, so that the latter may serve God as the tzaddik does. This concept is somewhat akin to Gilgul, transmigration, where a soul is attached to some object or animal, or another human being, except that in the case of Gilgul, the soul is chained to and dominated by the body to which it attaches, whereas in the case of impregnation, it is not. The soul of the tzaddik serves merely as an additional spiritual charge for the soul of the recipient. In our context, the impregnation of the Benoni soul with the ruach originating in the tzaddik soul enables the Benoni to experience the delight in God that he could not attain on his own. So this is a concept that the Kabbalists discuss. The, uh, the Arizal once stood up for one of his students I'm not sure, I think it may have been the author of the Reish's Chachma, one of his students. And he stood up for him, and the reason he stood up for him, he says, because the soul of Rabbi Pinchas ben Yoyer, famous Tana, Rabbi Pinchas ben Yoyer, who caused the sea to split, the sea split just on his, his behalf, when he was going to fulfill the mitzvah of redeeming those who were in prison, to fulfill the tremendous mitzvah of Pidyon Shvuyim, redeeming those who were in prison. And this rabbi, he stood up, just fulfilled this mitzvah. So the merit of doing this mitzvah, the soul of Pinchas ben Yoyer, entered into his being. So he stood up for him. Because he had a visitation. It was like a visitation of a greater soul. And that soul was, was impregnated or host, hosted a soul that was far surpassed and far exceeded that individual soul. So this is not like the concept of a dibuk. A concept of a dibuk is where one soul takes over the body and, and unnaturally takes over the body. This is a visit. It's an impregnation. It's your soul. But you feel suddenly that there's a higher reality. There's another reality. You feel a being, a presence of something greater than yourself. It's not you. This is not me. You feel a presence of something greater. And if a person merits, he'll experience it at least once in his lifetime. He'll experience a moment a special moment when he'll feel almost like, like as if he's a different person. Like you feel a different consciousness. This is not me. This is like an expanded, expansive consciousness. Uh, you feel totally different. Your mind is open. Your heart is open. You feel things. You feel a spiritual presence, a spiritual sense 
that's, that's foreign to you. It's not you. It's really beyond you, but it has, you are the host for this special soul, for this special visitation. Now, sometimes it stays for the rest of your life. Sometimes it's just a momentary visit, maybe for a few moments, maybe for a day. And you feel this, this otherworldly presence. You feel this, 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 that you become something else, that you had, um, you've been elevated to a different level, and it's not, it's not really you. It's like a, a presence that comes from outside of you. Because it's really, really on a level that's much, 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 much greater than you, much higher than you. So, if a person will try to the best of his ability to be like the tzaddik, to emulate the tzaddik, by trying to develop a sense of repulsiveness, a sense of being repulsed by materialism, and by trying to develop a, a sense of delight in Hashem, a pleasure in Hashem, not just doing the mitzvah, but to really finding pleasure in understanding Hashem and being, feeling close to Hashem, even though it's only imaginary, but Hashem is interactive. The way we act to Hashem, Hashem responds. So when there's an arousal from below, there's also an arousal from above. So if Hashem sees that the Jew is trying to the best of his ability and is doing whatever is humanly possible and beyond with the tools that Hashem gave us, using our minds, using our imagination, then Hashem will do His part. And Hashem will reward us and give us a soul, a visitation of a tzaddik. So at least for one moment in our life, we can experience what it's like to be a tzaddik. Because when you have that visitation of the tzaddik, when you experience that higher level of consciousness, at that moment, you are, you are like a genuine tzaddik. At that moment, not from your soul. Your soul doesn't have the capacity to be a tzaddik. But because of that visitation and that impregnation, that soul has merged with your soul, is visiting your soul, and your soul is a host to this soul, you can experience, on a conscious level, you can experience what it's like to be a tzaddik. Because at that, those moments, that you're, those privileged moments, you're not tempted to do anything wrong. You actually genuinely abhor and find materialism per se genuinely disgusting and repulsive. And for those brief moments, you genuinely delight and find ecstasy in godliness, in contemplating godliness and being close with Hashem. And this is a, 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 a gift that Hashem gives us. So that even the average Jew who doesn't have the capacity, who's not born with the capacity to be a tzaddik, could achieve that level, at least experience it at least once in his lifetime, thereby fulfilling the oath. So when Hashem administers a soul, the oath, be a tzaddik, it's not just in vain. It's not just to aspire to be a tzaddik. And you'll find it beneficial, even though you'll never genuinely achieve to be a tzaddik. And that's why the Torah, the, the Hashem continues, at least don't be a Russia, because that's within your capacity. But you may yet fulfill this promise. You took an oath after all. Be a tzaddik. So now that you've done everything that you can, Hashem will help you fulfill the oath, literally. That at least for a moment, or maybe for some people it will be longer than a moment. Maybe it will stay on for the rest of their life. They're worthy that they will have this visitation of a soul, of an otherworldly soul, of a soul that's much higher, from a higher realm, and from a higher dimension, a deeper dimension, and they'll be able to experience consciousness on the level of the soul of the tzaddik, who sees things differently, who sees clar- has the clarity and sees godliness and sees through the superficiality of the, of, of the materialistic world, per se. You know, this is something that... Um, Something that if a person merits, he experiences it. It's, um, 
it's not something he dwells on at great length. It's known, well known, those who study Kabbalah. Because again, it's not within our hands, it's not within our power. It's a gift from Hashem. If Hashem wants, you'll merit and you'll feel worthy. And Hashem desires, wants to reward you, is pleased with you and wants to reward you. He will reward you with this gift. You will have a special visitation. We'll have a special visitor of a holy soul, a genuine tzaddik. And your soul hosts this tzaddik. And you'll feel it in your consciousness. It'll merge with your consciousness. You'll feel it. But you'll feel like a presence of something otherworldly. Not you. It's not really you. It's beyond you. But you're, you're being taken along for the ride. And you're enjoying the experience. Continue. Thus is it written, Rejoice, O tzaddikim, in God. This alludes also to the idea that when two types of tzaddikim are joined together, the verse addresses tzaddikim in the plural form, when the Benoni, called a lower-level tzaddik, is impregnated with the soul of a tzaddik, a higher-level tzaddik, that is. They both rejoice in God, for the tzaddik imparts his delight in godliness to the Benoni. In this way, the oath charging him to, quote, be a tzaddik, end quote, will be truly fulfilled. It's not that his, his soul is transformed. The soul is not transformed. He remains a benini. So as he said earlier, Hashem created the soul of a tzaddik and there's only a handful. So it's not that his soul is transformed and suddenly becomes a tzaddik. He doesn't become a tzaddik. He remains a benini. But he hosts the soul of a tzaddik. He's impregnated with the soul of a tzaddik. So he feels this otherworldly, higher level of consciousness and this other level of experience. It's way beyond him. And he gets to enjoy and benefit from that, from that experience. And he feels it in his consciousness. That's the gift. That's the gift that Hashem gives him. That in your consciousness, you're able to experience something that's really beyond your level, beyond your consciousness. And you're able to experience a depth and a level, a dimension that's way beyond your ordinary dimension. And you, you know it's not ordinary. You can feel it. It's like, a, it's like you become a different person. You feel a presence. You feel a presence, a soul, but within you. Not outside of you, a soul within you, that you feel a presence and you... Then when you study Torah and do mitzvot, you, you do it with the pleasure that the soul of a tzaddik studies Torah and does mitzvot. And, and, and you're bored and you reject materialism per se, also with the same intensity and the same depth and level that the tzaddik does. And you feel what it's like. You get to feel what it's like. Maybe for a few brief moments, maybe for the rest of your life, or maybe for a short while, whatever it is. All depends on the individual. So this is why the person is administered an oath. You should be a tzaddik and don't be a rasha. Because firstly, in order to fulfill the second half of the oath, which is the most important, not to be a rasha, you must aspire to be the tzaddik. As Kalman said earlier, if you're not aspiring to be the tzaddik, there's no way you're going to make it. You're not going to make it to the finish line. You're not going to be able to avoid being a rasha unless you have a higher goal in mind. If you're trying to become egoless and you're trying to be like the tzaddik and you're trying to reach high levels of consciousness and you're trying to, to become as one with Hashem as possible to the best of your ability and you're trying, using your imagination, the tools that Hashem gave you, trying to develop a certain repulsiveness, a certain distaste to, towards materialism per se and to develop a certain delight and pleasure and spirituality and godliness, then that gives you the ability to fulfill the part that you are able to fulfill, and to fulfill it 100%, that is to be a, not to be a rusher. 
to have the strength of character and to have the inner strength and resolve to do the right thing. Think like a Jew and speak like a Jew and act like a Jew 24-7, all times, all places, including the midst of studying Torah, using every waking opportunity, every opportune moment to study Torah. But in addition, he's saying, he adds that in addition, if Hashem wants, Hashem could actually help you fulfill, Hashem sees you trying to the best of your ability. And Hashem knows that you can't actually fulfill the promise to be a tzaddik. Because, and not because you don't want to, because it's not, it's not possible. Hashem didn't give us the ability to actually, genuinely, we're, we're like the cats. We're not, we can't transform ourselves. It can't be a core change until Mashiach comes. And Mashiach hasn't come yet. So, and the, the proof is, <laughs> we're still acting like the cats <laughs> when the mouse is around. <laughs> Uh, so we don't need any further proof Mashiach hasn't come yet. Um, just look, look ourselves in the mirror and we can know tragically that <laughs> the moment hasn't occurred yet. Um, but nevertheless, if Hashem sees that we're trying to the best of our ability, then Hashem will do His part to help us fulfill this promise. When we have a visitation of a holy soul, then we can literally fulfill the promise that we made right before our birth, right before conception. That be a tzaddik. Once we have that visitation, you fulfill, you fulfill that obligation. You fulfill that oath. You fulfill your promise. You were a tzaddik. You tasted what a tzaddik is. You experienced the level of a tzaddik. Not because you become a tzaddik. No. Because of that visitation, your soul has been impregnated. And you have this otherworldly presence, this higher presence. I don't know if anyone in this room has ever experienced it, but uh, it's, uh, it sounds like it's a good thing to experience. When a tzaddik gets married, is the soul of his wife on that level? On that? Well, if marriage is half a soul, two half souls, so obviously if he's a tzaddik, she has to be a tzaddikist. Because God created him as a tzaddik. Right. So his half soul has to be a tzaddikist. Same, same situation. It would, it would, that, that's the logical... Uh, Conclusion. Uh, right, it's a logical conclusion. So how does he know a soulmate, that he's a soulmate. experiencing a young person experiencing a relationship that is going to get married? Is it do, do both parties know they have the soul of a tzaddik? Or? I'm sure a tzaddik knows that he's a tzaddik. A genuine tzaddik knows that he's a tzaddik. Don't forget, it's one or two in, in, in every generation. Um, so. Tzaddik knows, Moshe know, knew who he was, knew his strengths. As we learned earlier in the first chapter, Tzaddik, modesty doesn't mean uh, you don't know who you are. That's not modesty, it's foolishness. The Tzaddik knows who he is. And Korah challenged Moshe, Moshe put him in his place, six feet under. Moshe knew who he was, he knew his strength, he knew he was the only person that went to heaven and back three times. No human being ever before, since, has ever done that. Moshe broke through all the barriers. Moshe knew there was no one like Moshe and never will be any, any human being like Moshe. This, Moshe is the greatest prophet that ever lived. There never will be a prophet like Moshe. Mashiach will not be a great prophet like Moshe. Mashiach will be a greater leader than Moshe, a greater teacher than Moshe, but not a greater prophet. He'll be close to Moshe. And Moshe is the greatest prophet that ever lived and will ever live. You're not allowed to compare anyone to Moshe as a prophet. He went to heaven and back. There'll never be another Mount Sinai. There's only one Mount Sinai. Mashiach will implement the Torah that Moshe gave. So Moshe knew his strength, and Moshe was the most modest person that ever lived. So modesty has nothing to do. Modesty means honesty, being truthful, knowing your strengths and knowing your weaknesses, knowing who you are. 
A tzaddik knows he's a tzaddik. And um, it takes one to know one. It's a somet, you know, tzaddik somet. Look in the Torah. Other matters match. Chava. Avram and Sarah. Yitzhak and Rivka. Yaakov and Rachel and Leah. They, they, they were, these were matches made in heaven. Tzipora and Moshe. Aaron, Aaron and Elisheva. David's wives. Yeshua. I married uh, the convert. Rachel were converted. We learned. And um, all the... Uh, there were soulmates. They, they, they met their, their, their life partner. So obviously, if he's a tzaddik, he must be a tzaddikus. It's a match made in heaven. So how do, how do you fulfill this um, being able to look at materialism as a vessel full of filth? Or how, how do you apply that? How do you fulfill that? How, how do you develop ways to look at it? Learn from experience. <laughs> 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 so you're saying that the, you're saying to dwell in all the past heartaches and and all the empty promises and all the to dwell on that, focus on that, instead of focusing on all the. You see, it's interesting. Materialism, the whole attraction of materialism, is only in its promise. It's always in the future, it's a promise. It's a promise that's never realized, but it's always in the future. If you did this, you'll be happy. <laughs> Eat this cake and you'll be happy. Indulge in this, you'll be happy. <laughs> it's a, no, one, no one promises your money back <laughs> at the end of the day. You're not happy. <laughs> happy or excited? It's exciting, but it's only exciting for a moment. Right. No one tells you what happens after that excitement. But you can do it again. But then it gets boring, so you have to do something more. No, do something more, more outrageous. You've never driven before. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. I, um, I had a friend who had a 1967 Mercedes 250SL convertible. Magnificent car, right? Always wanted one. He had one up in the country. It was his father-in-law's and sat in the garage for 10 years. I was at his house one day, so I opened the garage and I see it. I said, John. What are you doing with it? He says, I, I'm not going to do anything with it. He says, I bought it from my mother-in-law for 10000 And the week after I bought it, I had to put, put 10000 into a new engine. And it sat here for nine years. I haven't touched it. So I said, give me the key. So I turned it on. It runs. Everything's fine. So I, I bought it. So it's a car I wanted all my life. Right? So I get it for 10000 And I rip it apart, take it off the frame, completely redone. I put another 18000 into it. I get it back. It took a year to get the car. I loved it. You know how long I loved it for? For about an hour. I left it in the garage. It was covered for about a year. Somebody looked at it. They said, you want to sell it? I said, sure, take it. I sold it. But it took a year for me to, re to redo it. I put all the leather in, the top, the tires, the whole nine yards. Repainted the entire thing. The want is greater than the need. You know, it's just it's so funny. I just, I just had exactly. It's interesting. Uh, my son, I have a son who was very wealthy, and all his life he wanted that, that Porsche you're talking about. He was talking about the Porsche. Oh, because this one was like $200,000. I don't know what model that was, but it's a... I was, I had a 911S. No, this is... But it wasn't $200,000, no, <laughs> but it was just, I still miss it. They make, they make 50 a year, and they custom make right. it, okay. So he bought this car. 
And his biggest thing was to get anybody in the family that was willing to take a ride to ride in his car. <laughs> so I took a ride in this car, and I was so scared. He opened this thing up, and they live in Jersey, in the back hills somewhere. I said, let me out of the car. I don't want to ride in this car. And I couldn't see it. I had no frame of reference what he, what he saw in this car to spend $200,000 for it. I mean, he gives a lot of seduction. I don't begrudge him the car. But he, he fulfilled a wish that he had all his life to go out and buy this car. It's like in the summertime. Well, we live here in the Northeast. You can't use a boat often, right? Yeah, yeah. In California, you use a boat all year round. Yeah. You, you ride along the highways here and you see all these boats that are sitting in the moorings right. on Saturdays and Sundays. Yeah. They're not even being used. <laughs> but somebody has to so have it's it. So it's interesting because it's true. In, in most cases, it's the chase that's actually more exciting than the actual yeah, acquisition. Yeah, it is, yeah. It's the promise, it's the chase. If only I would have it, the imagination. And the, once you have it, it's like, One, yeah, this, is it. <laughs> this is it. This is it. It's, it's such a letdown. It's like uh, there's nothing there, really. How can you fulfill that chase without actually... But that's, no, but that's, that's no, but once you realize, once you use your imagination and you realize that if this is what it's about, I mean, there's no substance to it. It's like everything, communism, it's all about the, the, the imagination, the chase. The, the, you know, people imagine, and then the actual was what a, what a, what a letdown. There was, there was nothing there, it was empty. It was, so it, all materialistic pursuits are really that way. If only I would have this, I'll be happy. And people spend their whole life and their whole energy, and they have no time for anything that really matters. It's right under their nose. Things that are, that are eternal, that will really nourish you, sustain you, and give you satisfaction, and give you depth, and give you meaning, and give you connection and purpose. I have no time for that. I'm busy with this dream. I have this dream and I'm busy pursuing and the chase and it consumes you. And then when you have it, it's like an hour and then it's over. <laughs> it's like chewing gum. It tastes good for a second and you spit it out. There's nothing there. Society in. is focused on exactly. making you chase constantly. Exactly. The whole society is based on that false hype advertisement, that, that the, the, uh, the red, uh, the red uh, siren and and seducing you, junk food, junk lifestyle, knowing that there's nothing there. Knowing the more junk food you, you indulge in, it's empty, it doesn't nourish you, it doesn't nurture you, it just makes you hungrier because you haven't eaten anything. It just makes you even hungrier and hungrier. And, and you need more junk. It's a dead-end street. Of course they want you because they don't have your interest at heart. They just want you to spend money. They just want to, they're, just, they're selling you a bill of goods and they know they're selling you a bill of goods. So the more you think about it and the more you realize these are not my friends, these are not people who want me to have fun. Let's have fun. Let's have a good time. They don't care about you. They don't care about you. They just want, they just want to use you and abuse you. And it's not for your health. And it's not for your benefit. And it's not for your good. And it's, it's everything in society. And today, the youth has been sold such a bill of goods. They've been sold a lifestyle that's so detrimental and so self-destructive. And so, it's, so it's, it's a dead end. I, mean, I just read today, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a horrific uh, number. There are 47 single women in America. Millions. 47 million single women in America. Who are going nowhere. But have been sold a bill of goods. Pour all their energy into their career. No family, no children, no reality. And it's a dead end. They've been, they've been sold a bill of goods. No health insurance. <laughs> And, and, they're really, and it's really, you know, yeah, have fun for the moment. But don't have fun for the moment. At the end of the day, what have fun? Who cares? What do you have left? That's fun. 
what, 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 what are you going to hug at the, end of the, at the end of the day? You're a tache case? Mm. I mean, what are you... No, so so it, when you, the more you realize, the Rebbe is saying, even a Benin, an average person, could develop in his mind, see through it, poke holes in it, make fun of it, realize that it's empty, it's superficial, be repulsed, be disgusted by it, it should anger you. These are the people, these are the leaders, these are the people, they, I'm going to trust them, these are the people I'm going to trust, and Madison Avenue hype, this nonsense that, that are, that's being peddled that they know is nonsense, and they know is self-destructive, and who knows what ulterior motives they have. Who knows what agendas they have. They, they don't have our interest at heart. If anyone had our interest in the heart, they would be telling people to have families, and, 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 and uh, the things that really give you pleasure in life, the things that at the end of the day really matter, at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. But people are not being told the truth, and people are not, are not being told honest. Honestly, they're being sold a bill of goods, and it should get you angry. Instead of having such respect, everyone today is respectable, a scientist and a, a researcher and everything. Every, you know, we treat whatever the New York Times says or whatever, whatever, whatever the world says with such respect. You know, this is conventional wisdom, and this is understood, and this is accepted, and this is normal. Use your imagination to be repulsed by it, to poke holes in it, to realize the ridiculousness. I'm going to let them define my life for me? Are you kidding? We have a Torah, the Torah we can trust. The Torah has our interests at heart. Hashem has my interests in heart. Hashem is my best friend. What Hashem tells me is pure, like mother's milk. Hashem loves me. Hashem cares about me, creates me, whatever. When Hashem tells me in the Torah to do something, this is good for me. This is for my best interest. It's for my health. It's for my best interest. It's for my benefit. It's good. On all levels, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually, and Jewishly, and practically, it works. It's real. You're going to have nachas, you can, have, you can enjoy life, it's beautiful, life is beautiful, life, you can have nachas, it's wholesome, it's good. Who am I going to trust? Hashem, his Torah, who never lied. When we were a people in the desert, Avram was a, a one Jew in the desert, in the Mesopotamia, Hashem pointed his finger at him and said, your children are going to, be, are going to live forever, are going to be all over the world, as we are today. The Torah never lied to us, the Torah told us as is, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Torah told us everything that's going to happen down to the Holocaust, everything, all the, the good as well as the... The Torah never lied to us. The Torah is my best friend. Hashem is my best friend. My be, the best advice is for my own good. Who am I going to trust? This Madison Avenue hype? This 30-year-old Schmendrick who's writing, who's writing plays, writing stories about life. He doesn't know anything about life. What does he know about life? <laughs> you know, who am I going to trust with my life make decisions? about what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's not good and what works and what's not good and what's practical what's not practical what's, what's real and what's fake. It, the whole thing is a mirage. The whole thing is, is a farce. It's, it's not even a comical farce. It's just it's, it's a sad, pathetic tragedy. Tragic farce. So the more you dwell in it, the more you focus on it, you become indignant, you become angry, and you poke holes in it, and, and, and you don't treat it with such respect. The next time that voice comes to you and tells you, yeah, let's have fun. Eh, yeah, you know, you're not my friend. I don't trust you. I know you're a charlatan. I know you're good for nothing. You're superficial. And you get angry at him. So at least, even though it's not genuine, because we are like the cat, and <laughs> it doesn't take us much to connect with something materialistic, and those flashing neon lights do attract us. But at least it's ammunition. It's helpful. It's helpful. Have a healthy dose of disrespect. Have a healthy dose of disrespect for the materialistic world, per se, and all the lies that it's telling you. It's all a bunch of lies. 
It's a horror, Madison Avenue. The whole society, one pack of lies. They're selling you a bill of goods. They don't have your interest in mind. This is not for your good. Just to live your life like the Joneses and just to follow whatever's politically correct and just to do and allow the New York Times to dictate your reality for you and to do all your thinking for you and to do so-called, uh, so-called authorities, respectful authorities. The Kinsey Report and other reports. And the more we know about these people, how rotten and corrupt they are to the core and what kind of disgusting, repulsive human beings they were. I'm going to take anything this guy says seriously. You know, the more you realize who these people are and what their agendas are, and you wouldn't invite them, you wouldn't have a cup of tea with them. They're so repulsive and disgusting. So I'm going to buy their philosophy in life and their viewpoint in life. And that's for my good? Who am I kidding? It's a dead end. It's self-destructive. So the more you develop it, the more you imagine and the more you use your mind, you could develop a certain distaste and a certain um, disrespect, healthy dose of disrespect for the materialistic world per se. Disconnected, divorced from any spiritual content, from any inner content, from the Torah, which is genuine and real and authentic and good and wholesome. And the proof is, where's everyone else? Long gone and forgotten. And with all the machers and movers and shakers that we're long gone and forgotten. We're still going to be studying the Tanya. We're still going to be around eating the matzah. And we're still going to be lighting the candles. We're going to still be in shul reading the Torah. The same Torah hasn't changed one iota. The same. This is real. This is eternity. This is real. As real as it gets. So instead of allowing them to dictate reality for us, we have to dictate reality. For us and for the entire world. We are the conscience of the world. We are the leaders of the world. We have to teach the world the Torah, the truth, the Sheva Mitzvah, the seven Noahide laws, etc. So even though we're not a tzaddik, and it's only imagination, because it can't be 100% genuine, but at least we could develop some sort of, some sort of, at least a pale reflection of what the tzaddik is, to develop some sort of distaste towards materialism, per se, divorce and disconnect, and some sort of pleasure in godliness, in dwelling in godliness, focusing on godliness, concentrating on godliness, meditating and experiencing some sort of delight, even though it may be imaginary, but, you know, after a while, I have it. It becomes like a second nature, and you drip after drip after drop after drop. It will leave an impression. It doesn't go to waste. Nothing good goes to waste. It's like a depth charge. If you don't see the impact today, eventually, it'll, one day it'll explode. It'll emerge. It'll surface. You just keep on, keep on another drop, another good thing, another good thing. You think it's imaginary, but you know, it, it leaves an impression, and it will help you. You'll find it, it's ammunition. It'll help you fulfill the second half of the oath. Don't be a rusher. It'll help us have the strength, the muster, the courage of our conviction to do the right thing and lead a wholesome and Jewish and good and godly and decent lifestyle. To be continued. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.